0: Today is May 20th. At 7.52 a.m. May 20th, 1927, Charles Lindbergh gunned the engine of the Spirit of St. Louis and aimed her down the dirt runway of Roosevelt Field, Long Island. Heavily laden with fuel, the plane bounced down the muddy field, gradually became airborne, and barely cleared the telephone wires at the field's edge. The crowd of 500 thought they had witnessed a miracle. 33 in one-half hours and 3,500 3,500 miles later, he landed in Paris, the first to fly the Atlantic alone. Working as a mail pilot a year earlier, he had heard of the $25,000 prize for the first flight between New York and Paris. Backed by a group of St. Louis businessmen, Lindbergh supervised the building of his special plane and set out after the prize. Other teams were attempting to defeat. Some had met disaster. Lindbergh equipped himself with four sandwiches, two canteens of water, and 451 gallons of gas. Midway through the flight, sleep began to cling to the plane, he said. That worried me a great deal, and I debated whether I should keep on or go back. I decided I must not think any more about going back. On the evening of May 21st, he crossed the coast of France, following the Seine River to Paris, and touched down at Le Bourget Field at 10.22 p.m. The waiting crowd of 100,000 rushed the plane. I saw there was a danger of killing people with my propeller, and I quickly came to a stop, he said. He became an instant hero. The Lone Eagle New York City gave him the largest ticker tape parade ever and the President awarded him the Distinguished Flying Cross. His feat electrified the nation's and inspired enthusiastic interest in aviation. Bad weather and prospect that his transatlantic flight would be delayed for a number of days greeted Lindbergh upon his arrival in New York. However, on May 19th, a favorable weather report predicted a break in the rain prompting Lindbergh to make his attempt the next day. He arrived at the airfield before dawn the next morning, prepared his flight for, plane for flight, and began his historic journey. About 7.40 a.m. the motor was started and at 7.52 I took off on the flight for Paris. The The field was a little soft due to the rain during the night and heavily loaded plane gathered speed very slowly. After passing the halfway mark, however, it was apparent that I would be able to clear the obstructions at the end. I passed over a tractor by about 15 feet and over a telephone line by about 20 with a fair reserve of flying speed. I believe that the ship would have taken off from a hard field with at least 500 pounds more weight. I turned slightly to the right to avoid some high trees on a hill directly ahead, but by the time I had gone a few hundred yards, I had sufficient altitude to clear all obstructions and throttled the engine down to 1750 RPM. I took up a compass course at once, and soon I reached Long Island Sound, where the Curtis Oriole with its photographer, which had been escorting me, turned back. Lindbergh continued his flight over Cape Cod and Nova Scotia and headed for the open Atlantic as darkness fell. Darkness set in about 8.15 and a thin low fog formed over the sea through which white bergs showed up with surprising clearness. This fog became thicker and increased in height until about two hours I was just skimming the top of storm clouds at about 10,000 feet. Even at this altitude there was a thick haze through which only the stars directly overhead could be seen. There was no moon and it was very dark. The tops of some storm clouds were several thousand feet above me, and at one time I attempted to fly through one of the larger clouds. Sleet started to collect on the plane, and I was forced to turn around and get back to clear air immediately, and then fly around any clouds which I could not get over. Lindbergh flew all over Ireland, and then England, at an altitude of about 1,500 feet as he headed toward France. The weather cleared, and flying conditions became almost perfect. The coast of France and the city of Cherbourg passed beneath his wings as darkness fell a second time during his flight. The sun went down shortly after passing Cherbourg, and, befo- and soon the beacons along the Paris-London airway became visible. I first saw the lights of Paris a little before 10 p.m. or 5 p.m. New York time, and a few minutes later I was circling the Eiffel Tower at an altitude of about 4,000 feet. The lights of Le Bourg were plainly visible, but appeared to be close, very close to Paris. I had understood that the field was farther from the city, so I continued out to the northeast into the country for four or five miles to make sure there was not another field out which. Might be Le Then I returned and spiraled down closer to the lights. Presently, I could make out long lines of hangers, and the roads appeared to be jammed with cars. I flew low over the field once, then circled around into the wind and landed. But suddenly, a hysterical, ecstatic crowd broke through the restraining ropes and stampeded toward him, cheering and shouting. As he opened the door, he was lifted down, hoisted onto the shoulders of the police, who carried him through the searching crowd. Cries of vive... vive... Ringing through the night, he had conquered the Atlantic alone, covering 3,610 miles in 33 and one half hours. He had won the Ortigue Prize. From the balcony of the American Embassy the following morning, he responded briefly and modestly to the persistent calls of the great crowd which had gathered. For hours after he had retreated back inside, they shouted, clapped, and waved their hats and handkerchiefs. In the days that followed, his fame as a hero grew to unbelievable proportions as he took Europe by storm. The President of France pinned the Legion of Honor upon his lapel, of his borrowed suit, and thousands of messages poured in upon him. It was as if everyone saw in him something they sought themselves, a spirit of adventure and achievement in life. Somehow he represented the symbol of hope in a weary world, for there was something unique about his integrity, courage, and indifference to honors. He had started with no purpose but to arrive. He remained with no desire but to serve. He sought nothing and was offered all. The Homestead Act of 1862 has been called one of the most important pieces of legislation in the history of the United States. The act was signed into law by Abraham Lincoln after the southern states seceded. The Homestead Act of 1862 was a revolutionary concept for distributing public land in American history. This law turned over vast amounts of the public domain to private citizens. 270 million acres, or 10% of the area of the United States, was claimed and settled under this Act. Repercussions of the monumental piece of legislation can be detected throughout America today. The prime land across the country was homesteaded quickly. Successful homestead claims dropped sharply after the 1930s. The Homestead Act remained into effect until 1976 with provisions for homesteading in Alaska until 1986. A homesteader had to be the head of the household or at least 21 years of age to claim a 160-acre parcel of land. Settlers from all walks of life worked to meet the challenge of proving up. They included immigrants, farmers without land of their own, single women, and formerly enslaved people. A filing fee was the only money required, but sacrifice and hard work exacted a different price from the hopeful settlers. Each homesteader had to live on the land, build a home, make improvements, and farm to get the land. The patent they received represented the culmination of hard work and determination. Nearly 4 million homesteaders settled land across 30 states over 123 years. The Homestead Act of 1862 allowed anyone over 21 years of age or the head of a household to apply for free federal land with two simple stipulations. Number one, they must be a citizen of the United States or legally declare their intent to become one. Number two, did not fight against the United States or aid enemies of the United States. And finally... Voice-over artist Wayne Allwine, who provided the voice of Disney icon Mickey Mouse for more than 30 years, died in California at age 62. This was in 2009. Allwine, the third person to voice Walt Disney's most famous cartoon creation, died on Monday, the company's website said. Local media reported Allwine's deaths following complications from diabetes. Howe began providing Mickey Mouse's distinctive falsetto in 1977, taking over from his mentor, Jimmy McDonald, after more than a decade at Disney, which began when he started in the mailroom in 1966. He made his debut on the new Mickey Mouse Club in 1977 and has provided Mickey's voice for Disney theme parks, movies, TV specials, records, and video games. His films included Mickey's Christmas Carol, The Prince and the Pauper, Mickey, Donald, and Goofy, the three musketeers. In time, you actually realize all the characteristics that this character has in yourself, Alwine once said. I've got all this naive qualities and all of his optimistic qualities. Alwine was married to Russie Taylor, who provided the voice for Mickey Mouse's spouse, Minnie, and many other popular characters. The couple had four children together. Wayne was my hero, she said to the Los Angeles Times. He really loved doing Mickey Mouse and he was very proud that he did it for 32 years. Walt Disney chief executive Robert Iger said "Alwine's death was met with profound sense of loss and sadness throughout our company. Wayne's great talent, deep compassion, kindness, and gentle way, all of which shone brightly through his alter ego, will greatly be missed, Iger said in his statement. Despite having served as Mickey Mouse for more than three decades, Alwine said he never lost sight of the advice given to him by McDonald, who in turn had taken over the voiceover duties from Walt Disney. Just remember, kid, you're only filling in for the boss, Mac- McDonald told Alwine. Mickey is Waltz. I'll, I'll wind Acknowledged. I get to take this wonderful American Igon and keep it alive until the next Mickey comes along. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com Charles Lindbergh at charleslindbergh.com, The Homestead Act at nps.gov, and The Voice of Mickey Mouse Dies at france24.com. The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.